people pray for charity. It would be much better if they prayed for faith. Because we forget that God whom we love by charity is known to us only through faith. And therefore, the more that you know our divine Lord, the more you will love him. And you know also that all that you do is promoted by some love. We all live for and work for a motive of love. And you cannot love that which you do not know. So the more that you know our divine Lord, then the more will you love him, because your apostolate is vain, unless it stems from sanctifying grace and the desire to please our Divine Lord and His Blessed Mother. Faith and love, these were the motives of this unique man's life. Within an hour of his death, on Saturday the 7th of April 1973, there was in quick succession thunder, lightning, sleet, snow, and then sunshine. It was as if the heavens were giving testimony to his passing and symbolizing the mood and magnitude of the occasion. On the following three days, it's estimated that more than 58,500 people filed silently past the coffin of His Grace, Archbishop John Charles McQuaid. The size of the crowd is all the more remarkable when we bear in mind that the man they were saluting had been out of public office for many months in retirement. And in these days, when so many other public figures are openly courting personal publicity, the Archbishop had, to put it mildly, shunned it. What was it, then, that drew these silent, genuine crowds on three busy working days in their lives to the presence of this man? After all, the media presentation of him for over 30 years and even to six days before his death, had, in varying degrees, been bitter, unmerited, malicious, and very often defamatory. Could it be that people have a way of seeing the truth, recognizing the genuine, and responding to the good? Whatever the answer, when all those thousands of people were left alone to make up their own minds, their response to their late archbishop was massive. It seems clear that a public relations officer was not necessary for him. What kind of man was he who could cause such public controversy and media criticism and yet evoked such strong personal love and respect in the hearts of so many unknown people? Perhaps in the next 80 minutes we will find at least something of his real character. When, on the 7th of April, the Archbishop became suddenly ill in his home, he was taken, at his request, to Lachlanstown Hospital, and there one of the last people to speak to him was Dr. Nasser, a resident physician at the hospital. Yes, I was with him actually the morning he died because I heard his grace was taken ill and he was brought to the hospital and I went up to see him. And um, when I walked into the room, he moved forward to shake hands with me. He looked slightly shocked like but um, I said how are you base and he said well I had a bit of pain which started you know in my chest but I said do you have any pain now and he said no I don't but the pain passed to my back and then 
I remember he, he pressed on my hand, you know, when I said, ah, oh, you, you, you're looking fine. He pressed on my hand as if to say, well, you know better or something like that, which really makes one wonder that he did know that he, he was going to die. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't much time for him to say anything when the, he had the second attack. But I remember when he, when we put him flat on the bed, he looked up at me, and that's all he did. He just looked at, looked up at me, and just closed his eyes. And that was the last thing I think he really was conscious of. Now, uh, when you first met His Grace, uh, you've known him now for a while. What was it that attracted you to him? I think what attracted me to him is his kindness and understanding and his sincerity, really. There is something in him, really, which uh, one can't, can't find in many people. Like, you know, the, he had so much understanding and so much knowledge. But there is an emptiness somewhere uh, which, uh, you know, I just can't... Uh, put my finger at it, but uh, sometimes I don't believe he is dead, like, you know, I feel he's still somewhere, like, one feels that uh, it can't be, like, uh, he was a great man, I must say. The son of a doctor, Archbishop McQuaid was born in Coot Hill, County Cavan, on the 28th of July, 1895. He was the second child of Dr. and Mrs. McQuaid. The young Mrs. McQuaid was to die five days after his birth, leaving the infant John Charles and his 18-month-old sister Helen to the care of their father. Later, when Dr. Eugene McQuaid remarried, the two young children were to have five more brothers and sisters. The youngest member of that family is the Archbishop's brother, Mr. Matt McQuaid. I'd say his, his qualities were kindness, charity, wonderful charity, and a wonderful sense of humour, which I think a lot of people didn't know that he had. He was so, he was so kind and thoughtful. If if he were sick or any member of the family was sick, uh, I mightn't see him for two or three weeks, uh, or perhaps more. He might, I might be aware of anything, and and uh, he might hear that I wasn't well or one of the family wasn't well, and he, you could be certain that he'd be. In straight away, the moment he'd hear the news, he'd call that evening. As in fact, he used to call on all his um, priests that were sick. I know at times when his, I used to drive him sometimes in the evening, and it was it was a tour of the Dublin hospitals and um, nursing homes to visit 
friends and uh, the priests of his diocese that were in hospital for one reason or another. He was he was the best passenger I've ever I have ever driven. He was. I remember on one occasion I was driving down the country, and I was doing well over ninety miles an hour, and I looked across to see how he was reacting to the the speed we were going at, and he was reading his office, and I don't think he was praying for our safety. <laughs> yes. Did he spend a lot of time with his family? Well, he, he didn't have the time to spend the family with the family, but if certainly at weekends we used to see him uh, quite a lot, various members of the family. We'd uh, go along and see him or meet him for a meal or he might call for a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing as regards the... Uh, his appointment as Archbishop, which I think would point out his, his always his great thoughtfulness, and that is that um, he, on the morning of his appointment, he sent a special messenger from Black Rock College uh, in, in with a letter to Mother, and the letter was something on the lines of uh, my dearest mother I want you to be the first to know that his holiness uh, the Pope has conf um, appointed me uh, Archbishop uh, of Dublin it is due to you and you alone that this great honour has been conferred on me In 1908, John Charles McQuaid started his secondary studies at St. Patrick's College, Cavan. Two years later, he went to Black Rock College and while there took first place in Ireland in Latin and a first-class exhibition in classics. He continued his education at Clongo's Wood College, where he received a gold medal in English in 1913. In the same year, Mr. McQuaid entered the Holy Ghost novitiate in Kimmage Manor and was professed the following year. For the next five years, he continued his studies and obtained a BA with first-class honours in ancient classics at University College Dublin, to which he added the higher diploma in education and an MA again with first-class honours with a thesis on the life and philosophy of Seneca. In 1924, the Reverend Mr. McQuaid was ordained to the priesthood at St. Mary's College, Rathmines, by the late Bishop Wilson. That same year, he went to Rome where he studied Oriental languages and earned the doctorate in theology. He was recalled to Black Rock College in 1925 where he was appointed Dean of Studies and Professor of English. One of his first pupils in Black Rock was Father Michael O'Carroll. What words could I use to convey what I think every pupil that sat under Dr McQuaid will agree he was unique as a teacher. The modern word is uh, communicator. You can use any word you like. There was magic in it. There was inspiration. 
there was uh, this um, personality which at first sight didn't seem the one to impress young boys. There was a certain aloofness about him and uh, a certain air of mystery, perhaps I should use the word magic. But he he had, um, he cast a spell over us. And uh, I should think that he's... uh, personal radiation through the the college, through the the boys, through the classes and that was uh, an element in our training. It was it was uh, something, it was an atmosphere that we breathed. While still Dean of Studies, Father McQuaid was responsible for gaining security of tenure and uniformity of contract for secondary teachers. In 1931, although still in his 30s, Dr. McQuaid was appointed President of Blackrock College, a post which he held until 1939. Father Aidan Lahan, now himself the President of Rockwell College, was one of the children who remembers the President of Blackrock during those years. Yes, I remember him very well indeed. In fact, two incidents stand out in my mind. On one occasion, we won the Under-13 Cup, which for us in those days was a very exciting experience and it was customary when something like that happened that you asked permission to go out to the local shops. Well, the Dean of Discipline at the time, the late Father James Fanukin, was Dean and was sick. So uh, we were instructed to go along to the President. Now we were five or six very small boys and we arrived up at the President's office and he received us with great charm and great courtesy and uh, spoke to us for about a half an hour, showed us various little works of art that he had in his room. I remember particularly one uh, cut glass uh, picture of the crucifixion, a rather unusual thing, which he went to a lot of trouble to explain to us. And in the end, he, having been very nice to us for about a half an hour, told us to clear out, uh, to move off and go out to shop and enjoy ourselves. And on another occasion, I was rather small at the time, I was so small, in fact, that couldn't, I wasn't allowed out to a rugby international. And there were three or four of us like that. And we were walking down the avenue and we met him. And at that time, he had just been put in charge. He was no longer president of Blackrock. He had been put in charge of a new section, specially thought out by himself for the sixth-year boys, which was known as the castle. And for us small boys at the time, the castle was very exciting territory indeed. We had never been in there. And he immediately invited us in. And I can remember that he spent perhaps two hours with us that day, spending, uh, showing us all over the castle, bringing us to all those exciting places, and spoke to us. And one remembered always the charm and the interest that he displayed in all our childish ideas and in all the, our childish ways of expressing things. In 1940, Archbishop Byrne died, leaving the Archbishopric of Dublin vacant, and on November the 11th of that year, Pope Pius XII nominated his successor. On accepting the nomination, Father McQuaid told the assembled boys in the Jubilee Hall in Blackrock College, I have been asked to accept and not to refuse, so I have accepted. On December the 27th, he was consecrated by the late Cardinal McCrory in the Pro-Cathedral in Dublin. On his appointment, he was the youngest prelate in Ireland. Archbishop McQuaid was soon to become the most distinguished member of the Irish hierarchy. One of his many friends amongst the prelates in the church was Cardinal Heenan, the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster. Yes, I'll very gladly tell you about my own personal relationship with him. I received great kindness from him when I was a young priest, 
when I came over to Ireland, to during the war it was, to make a report on Ireland for the Catholic papers in this country. And although I was very young and unknown, he gave me great courtesy and hospitality and helped me in every way. I came to know him really well uh, when I was already a bishop, and we met on many occasions then, and we exchanged views. The thing that struck me about him, as I'm sure it struck everyone who knew him, was his great honesty, the sort of rugged honesty. I've never met a man who cared less about popularity. Now, this is not to be interpreted as a sort of arrogance. There are some people who are arrogantly uh, against any public view of themselves. But he wasn't like this. He cared very much. He was a sensitive man. But nothing he ever said or did was measured in terms of whether it would be popular or not. This is the thing I admired about him more than anything else. Now, his impact on the world at large was a very peculiar one. He was regarded as a sort of touchstone of orthodoxy. I can remember, for example, we were both invited to be preachers at the Eucharistic Congress in Sydney. That was in 1953. And he gave some very eloquent speeches and preached on the biggest occasions. And he was listened to because he was regarded as the voice of Ireland by the church in Australia. Now, as you know, the origins of the church in Australia are almost exclusively Irish. And he, uh, Archbishop McQuaid, was accepted as the authentic voice of Catholic Ireland. Now, in the Vatican Council... It was similar. He spoke very rarely indeed, and when he did speak, he spoke only for about a quarter of his allotted time. We were allowed ten minutes for each speech. What he said was pointed, it was apposite, it was always the expression of the deep faith which was in him. And that was a deep faith which circled around two twin truths of the Catholic religion, the Mass, the Eucharist, and the Blessed Virgin Mary. Those were the two loves of his life, the Holy Mass and the Mother of God. And I believe that in time to come, history will vindicate him and people will realize what a very great man they had in Archbishop McQuaid of Dublin. As Cardinal Heenan mentioned, the Archbishop represented the Irish hierarchy at the Eucharistic Congress in Sydney in 1953, and the address he gave on that occasion is still being spoken of with admiration. In it, he outlined the heritage of Europe from the time of the Sophists to the age of Sarth. The Italian Renaissance of classical learning is rightly regarded as a return to Greco-Roman culture. Very soon, however, one finds at the core of that movement evidences of a philosophy that in spirit and in fact aimed at effecting a rupture with the authentic European development of that culture. For two centuries Italy was the leader and teacher of civilized Europe until she succumbed to the military power of Spain and ceded to France the hegemony of culture. Despite the very many monuments of literature and art produced in those centuries, one notes an emphasis on language for the sake of rhetoric, 
to the disregard of the content of the classical writers, especially of Cicero. One remarks, too, a very grave decline in the pursuit of genuine philosophy, in the nominalism of Occam, who more than any other single writer has broken the synthesis of St. Thomas and of European culture. Man and nature, each an end in itself, tend now to become the aim of human investigation, not man and nature as components of a universe of which God is the ultimate explanation. The Archbishop's was a character with style, and many have tried to define his ability to bring with him a certain electricity when he entered a room. One of these is Tim Pat Coogan, the editor of the Irish Press. Oh, his worldly wisdom, I think, his knowledge of uh, human nature, his experience, and uh, withal uh, a, a great kindness. He wasn't at all, um, in private discourse, the letter of the lawman that you might think he was from his public pronouncements. He, he could make allowances for Jack the Ripper. And if you went to him with the problem, which for some reason or another you couldn't handle through normal channels, you'd find that all this perception and charity coalesced and that the advice you would get would be far better, say, than a legal judgment by a senior counsel, and it would work. Uh, he had ordinary charity, too, in as much as any poor person who would approach him or any worthy cause was always sympathetically listened to and indeed assisted. Now, it could be said that a lot of this was um, sort of um, Cosimo de' Medici stuff, uh, patronage, and there was a touch, I always felt, of that Renaissance man in him. He had that uh, tremendous knowledge of power and, and the fine Italian hand thing. He had the austerity. He had, the, he had an instinct for power and how to manipulate people. But he also had that delicacy which you need for that sort of thing. He understood uh, how crass power can be. And his his weapon, if it wasn't really either the stiletto or the bludgeon, it was more the, sh the shoehorn, but it, it was an ivory shoehorn. Um, I, I, the more I knew him, the more I thought that was it. The first time I think I saw him close up in public was at a Boston Philharmonic concert in Dublin, and he was sitting literally above the crowd in a box on his own, rather hunched up uh, with the scarlet cape on him. And it struck me very forcibly that here was a man whom uh, Machiavelli would have been at home with. And the more I got to know him, uh, the more uh, I uh, thought that first impression was true. He had a concept of what the, the job was and how it should be carried out. Uh, time passed, and uh, in a sense the church exchanged the blackthorn stick for the guitar, in this country anyhow, but uh, he didn't change. His concept of his role, of his God and of his church uh, didn't change, and he was strong enough to carry that with him. He had an unhappy knack of um, drawing the lightning to him. His, uh, the slightest uh, utterance of his or manoeuvre of his, which other people would find acceptable, which people would find acceptable in somebody else, was the, the subject of tremendous uh, letters to the editor or fashionable dinner party conversation. Archbishop McQuaid was always accused of being a conservative, but his critics seemed to have at times a certain confusion about the total use of that word, for they applied it to him in the sense that he could never be liberal. Dr. Donald Cregan, the president of St. Patrick's Training College, had evidence to the contrary. 
I found him, in his dealings, he was extremely uh, liberal in the sense that he allowed you to uh, go ahead with what you were doing and didn't interfere. Uh, I remember he said to me once uh, uh, in the position which I held, look, you do what you think right and I won't interfere. And he certainly kept to that all the years that I knew him. So that in that sense he was extremely liberal. Now he has been described, of course, as being a very conservative I should say about that uh, that it's true that he was conservative in doctrine. He took as his uh, motto to give testimony to the truth. And uh, I think he saw his task as being that of reflecting the uh, faith of the vast majority of his people. It, this was a pastoral concern of his. And in the 1940s and 1950s, of course, uh, the, the Irish people were conservative in their doctrine and in their faith. Now, he reflected this, and I think he would have been glad to do so, I think uh, as, as a bishop, but I think also as a man, uh, he, his own faith was traditional. Now, but he was not uh, in, uh, in this, so that in this sense he was not liberal, he was uh, traditional or conservative, if, if you like. And this is no bad uh, position to hold. Now, as president uh, of St. Patrick's Training College, you must have had some dealings with him as an administrator. Now, you've touched on it there yes. by saying that he said, do yes. what you have to do. Yes. Was he able to delegate, or did he have to know every single thing that was going on? Oh, no, he didn't. He didn't really uh, want to know what was going on at all. I remember he wrote me one letter one time, a rather long letter, but he put a PS at the end of it, and he said, sometimes as I pass your gates, he said, I, I seem to remember that I have something to do with the college. Mr. Robert Murphy, the Archbishop's driver and helper for almost 25 years, has his own special memories. His kindness, his kindness was continuous. There's so many, uh, it's hard to think. But I, he was a, really a very kind man. So many different things I could think of. But his kindness, even to my myself, my own family, especially in sickness, uh, trials, any, anything like that, and the family, my own wife, and uh, the other members of the family, and m one most recent is my own sister-in-law. Only ten days she died before His Grace himself. And his kindness then was outstanding. He uh, realized the situation, as it was with us at home, that uh, there could be no entertaining... Uh, Preparation for meals or anything in my house, and immediately uh, uh, entertain the whole immediate family in his own home. Now, through the years, did he call to see you in your house at certain times? Oh, a constant visitor. Even when the children were small, he would help them with their uh, exercises. You know, their homework. Come and uh, help them, especially with Latin, especially. He was very good. He was an expert on Latin. And uh, any uh, particular time, such as Christmas, every Christmas, of course, and uh, Easter, would always come in make himself at home. Even in his retirement, now we 
about sat and watched the match on the television. He'd come up the back, you know. One day in particular he came in, Joseph was only at school, and we were here by ourselves. He was playing around as his grace walked in. I was fast asleep at the fireside. And uh, Joseph saw his grace. He said, uh, Dad's asleep, your grace. Will I waken him? Mm. No, he said, leave him. He walked around and out again. I'll see him later, Joseph, he said. So when I wakened up, Joseph said, you know, his grace is walking around you there, Dad. I said, I'd better go over and see, then he might want me. So I went over, and he was in a fit laughing, you know. And I asked him, did he want me? No, he said, I, I'd like to go and see so-and-so at half seven that evening, you know. Well, I was very, very uh, relaxed in my company anyway. I knew that if he was saying his office uh, to keep quiet, and if, he, if it was in the dark, I could hear the beads going, so I wouldn't uh, interrupt and on the other hand, he knew that if we were doing a journey at speed, there were time uh, counted, he wouldn't uh, hold a conversation either, or like anyone else to do it in the car. It is easy to bear the persecution of persons who are not so good. St. Augustine tells us <coughs> that we cannot reach perfection unless we are persecuted by good people. The Archbishop's attitude to his critics was almost supernatural. When urged to take action against those who attacked him, he replied, I will not throw mud. I will not answer my critics. God will judge in the end as to who was right. There is no doubt that he was made to suffer greatly by the many harsh and even unjust things that were said and written about him, for his was a sensitive soul. And those close to him have remarked at how deeply distressed he was just six days before his death on reading yet another article slighting his administrative abilities. One of the many people who urged him to take action against those who did throw mud was Mr. Jack Lynch, leader of the opposition. He must have known himself, and he was a man of great intelligence naturally, and uh, a lot of people must have been telling him, even if he didn't read some of these newspapers. In fact, as it happened, I discovered that he was... Uh, an avid reader of newspapers, articles, foreign and, and home produced, so that he must have been very well informed and therefore must have been fully conscious of the criticisms to which he was subjected from time did, to time. Did you ever mention it to him? Did you ever have an occasion to say it to him? Well, on the, that last visit to him, on the New Year's visit, just uh, on his retirement, I mentioned to him that I had seen a program put out by Radio Telepi Sheridan a television program the night before and uh, I said I felt that was a not a very well balanced team of commentators that were arrayed and um, I said that there were some hurtful things said about him and um, I didn't say exactly what they were but I, I said to him that perhaps you might um, ask some of your staff who might have seen the program to tell you about it because I think there were things said that uh, ought to be denied because some of the things that were said I know to be untrue. So he said very humbly, well, if there were Hartford, he said, well, God will, will judge who was right in the end. Perhaps for those who knew the Archbishop best, one of his most striking qualities was his uncanny understanding and knowledge of human nature. The Most Reverend Dr. Sims, Archbishop of Armagh and Primate of Ireland, was one of many to have recognised this humanity. I came uh, to serve in 1956 as um, Archbishop of Dublin in my Church of Ireland 
I frequently met Archbishop McQuaid. We had the uh, usual calls at Christmas time and Easter time. And uh, discussion, of course, I think um, as a result of the Second Vatican Council um, turned not only on matters of uh, courtesies and uh, 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 like, but uh, more on the issues that came before the Vatican Council. Not that we spoke in uh, any great detail about the particular issues, but he did bring me the documents and told me a lot about the procedure at the Council and often recommended books. I remember he brought me a very fine book. It was about the old churches, uh, Faber's uh, book on the old churches in Rome and the diggings and the archaeology, and this I have still with his name in it. Well, I did think that his uh, concern for individuals was very deep and his compassion for people who were in need and his ability somehow to see uh, perhaps in a poor man's cry or perhaps in some complaint or some human predicament something good, something um, out of which uh, a creative result could come. I remember in Paris on one occasion an official of the congregation saying to me that she had met a very saintly priest with whose work I was much associated. And this priest said to her one afternoon, a strange thing, our blessed lady walks through this house twice a day and she sees that such and such is not according to the rule. And he was perfectly right in what he said to that superior. And that shows you how close is the supernatural to us. And I would ask you to believe that our Blessed Lady is so close to your lives who are dedicated to her that you could almost touch her, you could almost see her. The saintly priest to whom the Archbishop referred was, of course, Père Lamy, and when he is mentioned, we immediately think of Comte Paul Biver. For many years, his grace in the company of Father Vincent Dynan of the Holy Ghost Order, his close friend for 43 years, made a pilgrimage to Notre Dame de Bois in Longa with the Combe Vert. It was there that the Blessed Virgin appeared on occasions to Père Lamy. Father O'Flynn, the spiritual director of the Legion of Mary, tells of Archbishop McQuaid's extraordinary devotion to Our Lady. Well, of course, um, first of all, the ordinary signs of his devotion were obvious enough, I suppose. When he came on first at, as Archbishop, he um, encouraged the uh, miraculous medal devotions. They began, they uh, started them in the various churches and so on. Then he used, I believe, to say um, the full 15 mysteries of the rosary every day. Uh, little things, such as the placing of the statue outside Matter Day, the lights, and he would miss a light uh, a bulb that had blown from the crown or lady's head and so on. In little ways like that, in conversation, uh, his devotion to our lady would come out. It was uh, quantitatively, so to speak, it was uh, rather remarkable. Uh, that is the first thing, I suppose, one would say about it. Well, now, I could say to you that a lot of people have that sort of devotion. Was there anything special, would you say, now, apart from all of that, apart from the lovely simplicity that you have brought out in his devotion? 
Well, uh, one thing that strikes you straight away, of course, is the fact that um, he hardly ever made an important pronouncement. Hardly ever wrote an important document, at least that I can recall, he never did, without mentioning Our Lady. And that uh, is rather extraordinary thing, isn't it? Yes. Dr. Tierney, the former president of University College Dublin, approached the Archbishop about the provision of hostels for university students. His response to that was a, a response that had a great influence on me and on the future of the college because he said, he asked me, where did I think the, where did I think the college should be cited? Well, he said, you can't be satisfied with the position you have and there's no possibility of uh, building hostels round Earls for Terrace and uh, I said that we had some vague plan for acquiring houses on Stevens Green on the side where the Department of External Affairs is and uh, gradually becoming owners of the whole area between Stevens Green and, and Hatch Street between Earlsford Terrace and Harcourt Street. And to that he said, I, I always remember that uh, he didn't agree with that idea and he wouldn't advise me to adopt that as a policy. But he said, you'll take a hundred years buying houses and in the end you'll have great difficulty with every one of them. And in the end, uh, the, the last one will take you longer than any. And by the time you have it, it, the whole place will probably be too small and the whole plan inadequate. He said, if you take my advice, you'll move out of Earls for Terrace altogether. And it was that advice from the Archbishop that uh, made me make up my mind that our only course was to get out uh, well outside the centre of the city. To the intellect of the saintly St. John Baptist de La Salle, not only Europe, but what is often forgotten, the whole civilised world owes very much of what is now accepted as commonplace in primary and secondary education. The brothers of the Christian schools have become the symbol of the many teaching congregations that owe their inspiration to this educational genius who was at once a conservative traditionalist and an unexampled pioneer. Brother Eamon, you are, as a Marist brother, in the tradition of that unexampled pioneer, St. John Baptist de La Salle. Now, how would you assess His Grace's contribution to education? I think it would be both presumptuous of me and impossible for me to adequately assess his contribution to education. Everybody knows his uh, achievements in the field of the provision of primary schools throughout the Archdiocese and also of his work in founding secondary schools to provide for education, uh, secondary education throughout the Archdiocese as well. His interest in vocational education was indeed equal to his interest in the other branches. And I think that it would be true to say that without his foresight and planning that it simply wouldn't have been possible for the O'Malley scheme of free education to have been introduced in 1967. But I think a lesser-known um, contribution that His Grace made to education began back in 1943, when he was appointed by the then Minister for Industry and Commerce, Mr Sean Lemass, as chairman of a commission which was to report on youth unemployment. This is an extraordinary report, which was finally published in 1951, and which contains in it 
almost every aspect of modern educational innovation that we are now so familiar with. And this was, I think, the genesis of the policies uh, initiated during the Lamasps period, or at least, if not initiated, implemented in many respects. But then um, he's also, his interest in education goes back, of course, to Blackrock College when he was president of the Catholic Headmasters Association. Uh, from there to um, the Dublin Adult Institute for Education, at Clonliffe College, and of course, Mater Dei Institute, which was, I think, his final great achievement. Very often his motives in education were questioned. Why would you say this was so? Well, perhaps one of the problems of great men is that the very magnitude of their work provides the opportunity for criticisms by lesser, lesser minds. I think that criticism of this kind is a, an unintended compliment, that because so much was achieved, more ought to have been done. His greatest motive in the whole field of education, irrespective, was the motive of that education should be permeated with the message of the gospel. Mother Jordana, Vice President of the Mater Dei Institute and Secretary of the Dublin Educational Council for Secondary Schools, which was founded by Archbishop McQuaid, was perhaps for many years one of his closest associates in the field of education in the Archdiocese. His vision of the educational scene, he was a man before his time in the whole educational field. He, he, he was concerned about the whole person. And because he was concerned about the education of the whole person, he was therefore concerned about the education of the whole person in every time, in every age, in every culture. And he realized that times were changing and changing rapidly and that we would have to meet the, these changing times in education. And that whereas the traditional forms were excellent and should, in fact, be maintained as far as is possible, but that changes had to come and that it was his not only business but responsibility as chief educator in the diocese together with the parents and the community to see that this was done and this is why he was interested and did so much to bring about the community school as we know in Tara and in Blanchardstown. Day Institute, well that's an interesting thing and I think it is indicative of the, the kind of person Dr. McQuaid was that um, almost, it's, it's almost in a sense portrays his sense of humour, if, like, if you'd like to put it that way. I remember well we were talking about what we would call the Institute and he was talking about titles of Our Lady. And then he said it reminded him of a story of a gentleman who said, well, we talk about Our Lady of Lourdes and we talk about Our Lady of Fatima and we talk about Our Lady of Knock. But he said, sure, whatever else she is, she's the mother of God. And then he said, Matter Day... That's what we'll call the institution.